Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, show number 98. We're fresh back from Glasgow. Well, not that fresh. I was going to say, that was a week ago. It is, it is. Well, yeah, it was an epic journey. But welcome to the show. My name's Adrian Hobart. My name's Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobart Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Mysteries. Suspense. Crime. And thrillers. Welcome to the show. And our guest this week is Lucy Hooft, who is speaking to us from probably the most remote location anyone has spoken to us on the show ever. And the most interesting, I think. Uh, yeah, I would say so. So uh, a very small town in deepest Namibia on the coast where she and her husband are cultivating great sea kelp. I know. I mean, that's not your everyday occupation, is it? It isn't. It isn't. It's a fascinating explanation as to what they're trying to achieve and the the mission they've given themselves over in Namibia. Uh, But can you imagine going to the shops takes a 130-mile trip each way? Yes. And and so I said, what do you do when you run out of milk, as you'll hear in the interview? And um, she said, well, you just run out of milk. (laughs) Yeah, and the town frequently (laughs) does. Anyway, uh, it's great. She's got her first crime novel out this week. So, uh, yeah, it's lovely to speak to her. And, in fact, our copy of The King's Pawn has just dropped uh, through the letterbox. So we're excited to read that. As and when. As and when. As well, and look, when, yeah. It's yeah. on the pile. <laughs> it is, it is. It very much is. Listen, this podcast is all about running a book uh, publishing company. And obviously we have our key interviews as well. But, you know, it, it's it been a really hard week for us. I think on many levels. And can I just give you, I mean, don't, don't laugh, please. It oh. was most embarrassing. Um, I got, well, what one would describe as an embarrassing moment at the football. I went to watch Stockport County with my son James on Saturday. And we were separated because his season ticket's right at the back of the stand. And he had, because it was a sellout, they had to get me a ticket somewhere further towards the front. In fact, the sixth row from the uh, goal line. And unfortunately, as you'll know, if you go to football at all, they always have a warm up where they do shooting drills. You can see where this is leading now. And they have a fake goal that sort of goes in place for that for that particular job. My seat was just to the right of the right-hand goalpost. And with the very last kick of the practice, the ball flew towards me, except I was looking at my phone at the time and I didn't see it coming and it caught me squarely in the family area. So the ball hit your ball? (laughs) Yeah. I ended up being (laughs) examined by the St John's Ambulance staff and then sent to hospital. Yes. Um, And I'm in still some degree of discomfort. Anyway... It was great amusement to everybody else who witnessed it. Well, yes, and I had this message explaining what was going on, and I happened to be um, talking to Judy Dakin at the time, and I, <laughs> I have to confess, I said, oh, dear. 
<laughs> so she she knows what happens. Yeah. Okay. Well, now the world does. I just wanted to share that. But it see, was all... I didn't know whether you wanted me to share it. So I know. I know. Well, look, just the thing is, it was just on top of a really tough week because I just so many things have been tricky. The number one thing, and we were talking about it last week, is Amazon still have not allowed us to publish The Unfamily by Linda Huber, even though we own the rights and uh, we have a deal with Linda. Yeah, the paperback is there. The paperback <laughs> is there, but the ebook is not. No. It just, it just beggars belief. And Amazon just keep throwing spanners in works on such a regular basis at the moment. I'm sure this is happening to all independent authors and publishers. Uh, there's nothing we can do about it. You have written repeatedly with basically the contract attached and all that sort of stuff, and they have not shifted. Well, they haven't replied to my latest one, which was, I think it was Thursday night, wasn't it? So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, yeah. Monday. I it's, don't know how long I wait till I... Uh, it's just just hopeless. And, you know, I know it sounds like a whinge, and it is in many ways, but at the same time, the way that Amazon communicate with people who are trying to... The vendors, as they call us... Is just shockingly hopeless. You just get passed around a chain of pre-formatted emails. Well, I have a, we have another problem with Amazon. Well, yes. So I should call it an issue. An issue with Amazon. So the confession by Maureen Myant, um, fine, published in, uh, in e-book and paperback. Yeah. No problem at all. However, if you look at the paperback version on Amazon, it is showing that Maureen has had 7,000 reviews and ratings. That was a great book. <laughs> But it's only been out two weeks, so, you know, that is quite a tall order for any book. It's because the reviews that are showing on that page are for John Grisham's The Confession. Genius. Now, I've written to Amazon twice now, and the second time um, the person said, oh, um, I'm not the right person you should contact, so this is here's a link to a box where you can fill out your problem and they will sort you out, which I did. And then I got an automatic response saying, um, if you're reporting abuse on the Amazon site, you should do this, this, this and this. <laughs> it's just nothing to do with it. I'm not reporting abuse. I'm reporting no. an error. <laughs> it's it's just rubbish, frankly. And there's no one, there's no human to speak to. You can have a live chat with someone from Amazon and it just goes around. It just, just does not work. Your customer care is useless. And it's costing you money too because these are potential sales. Also, it I mean, just you, looks bad. Anybody who, you know, anybody who's had a uh, misdelivery or whatever else will also know that, you know, Amazon are pretty generous in that they'll send something else out and then suddenly you'll find that they left it under, you know, a stack of boulders six miles away, but then you get the product. So you've got two copies of the same book or whatever it might be. You're costing yourselves money with your just your customer care element is just terrible. Anyway, that's our whinge. It was a difficult week on other levels. But I did have a little bit of joy yesterday, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what my little bit of joy was? Go on. I went to Telford Shopping Centre. Oh, um, yes, yes. I was I, taking, I'm I was, with you now. I was taking uh, middle child to the cinema, and rather than come home and go back again, I thought, I'll just potter around the shopping centre. And who was there at the same time but Mr Motivator? Mr Motivator. Derek, what's his... I can't remember his name now. I can't remember his surname, but yes, Derek is his name. Yes. Um, I saw... Well, Mr Motivator came to the BBC uh, for sports relief and did a mass motivation 
about 2,000 people in the plaza working out to Mr. Motivator. Well, uh, I can't say he was doing a mass motivation in terms so of shopping centre. I, I did share a <laughs> lift with him. Uh, and, you know, we, said, I, we exchanged a few words. But anyway, lovely guy. Um, so he was sort of getting people to dance with him. And I would say all the people under the age of about 30 were just staring at this, this brightly coloured chap. <laughs> <laughs> no idea who he is. No idea who he is. I mean, I said to my ch- uh, my son on the way home, I told him about it, and he said, no idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, no. He's a, he's, a, he's a treasure, national treasure, and, and should be treated as such. And he's well into his 60s now, I think. Uh, looks great on it, I have to say. Right, uh, we've delayed the news. We just wanted to have a clear-the-air session about the things that we've been facing. And, you know, they're just multiplying, basically. You, know, you get to a point, this time of year as well, with the shorter days, just feels quite oppressive. And we've been doing an awful lot of ferrying of family to and fro various things, your mother and the kids and whatever else. It just eats into your life, really. So it's difficult. And now there's a World Cup on, just to add to the... Which I don't care about. Well, I know you don't, because you've got me delivering books during the match. I can't believe it. Anyway. What do you mean I've got you delivering books during the match? It's true. We England kick off at one o'clock, and we've got to be in Telford at one thirty. But you wanted to play tennis at two anyway. Well, I'd forgotten about the match. Anyway, look, I, I'm, I'm falsely blaming you. Anyway, let's get into the news very quickly. Um, the International International the Edinburgh International Book Festival, the International International, makes heartbreaking decision to scale down. Well, now this is um, in terms of book festivals. Where would you put Edinburgh on the rankings in terms of overall literary well, uh, festivals? I think it's probably number. Three maybe in the country after Hay on Wire. So we've got Hay, um, Cheltenham, Cheltenham, of course. Yeah, probably three then. Yeah, possibly even number two. It's scaling down in a massive way because they're anticipating terrible ticket sales for next year, and they've also cut the online presence because they say it's just too expensive to run. Which, okay. which mm. it was a pandemic solution for a lot of festivals. Remember bloody Scotland doing it and actually having a very successful time of it, even though their numbers were down last year, uh, the year before last. And they did it online, and and but Edinburgh are saying they just can't afford it, and they are reducing staff. That this is an anticipation of people having less money and attending fewer events, and uh, they prepared a prudent strategy to weather this highly challenging period, and will deliver an economically sustainable book festival in twenty twenty three. Scale of the operation will be reduced, including cutting expenditure across all areas of the organisation, revising the delivery of the festival itself. This has required some tough decisions. Most heartbreaking, the resizing of the incredibly talented team behind the festival, i.e. sackings, and charities work, and pausing our streaming activity, which has been a success in the opening up of the festival, but costs are a significant amount and uh, are unaffordable in the current climate. Wow. Well, they haven't actually listed uh, who's coming to this festival. It's, it's imminent mm. uh, for next year, but that's a biggie. That's a biggie. I mean, it's, it's a very much a sort of multi-genre, across-the-board literary festival. Yeah, it is a literary festival as opposed to a crime or romance or whatever. Oh yeah, I, you know, you do you do wonder live events. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're right. People are going to choose. I mean, it runs alongside the Edinburgh International Festival and the Fringe. Mm which I'm sure both of which will be coming under pressure. But if you've got a choice between seeing a top stand-up comic or an international, I don't know, spectacular, do you give the latest appearance by X author? Uh, do you turn that down? I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know how many authors 
are guaranteed ticket sellers, actually. I honestly don't know. <laughs> Apart from Stephen Fry, who's always entertaining on all levels. Yeah. There must be some others. I'm I mean, sure I mean, are, I but... mean if Salman Rushdie made his first public appearance since his attack, that would be huge. But he possibly he's isn't. He's probably recuperating, isn't he? he? Isn't, he's not in a good way, no, not at all. Uh, and the other one that we've talked about for several weeks and a lot of interesting information came out in the court case. This is in the United States where the Department of Justice was challenging Penguin Random Houses proposed by out of Simon & Schuster. And Reuters are, uh, are saying that the uh, deal between Penguin Random House to buy Simon & Schuster is due to fall through. It was, oh, that is big news. Yeah, it was $2.2 billion sale was the proposed takeover. And... The Department of Justice last month won their case on anti antitrust grounds, saying that, you know, just be too big for the, the, the book market and destroy um, competitive, uh, you know, competitive well, marketplace. It comes at, um, what is it, Oligop oligopoly? Uh, yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> or duopoly? Well, I mean, a cartel, I think, is probably more <laughs> more, more realistic. I mean, because there's still, there'll be the big four in America as opposed to the big five. Oh, so a quadopoly. Well, I don't know what you'd describe it as. Anyway, uh, it was uh, antitrust. And PRH, Penguin Random House, had said that they were planning to uh, appeal. But Reuters reports that Bertelsmann, who owns Penguin Random House, was unable to convince Paramount Global that's Simon & Schuster's current owner, to help launch an appeal and extend the deal contract before its expiration date, which is on today, Monday the 21st of November. And the New York Times is also reporting that Paramount have decided to allow the purchase agreement to expire. And if the deal falls through, Bertelsmann will now own Paramount a $200 million breakup fee. So they get nothing for it. They've got all those legal fees. And they lose $200 million to can, their rivals. Can we have a breakup fee? <laughs> we might need one. Um, well, I might need one. Well, you can keep the cap. Um, please. Uh, so, anyway, that's uh, no, that's that's an interesting thing. And, of course, many, many authors got involved, particularly Stephen King, in giving evidence to this. And, uh, it, you know, it really shone a light on the, the truth of publishing in the United States, particularly the size of the marketplace. Um, and uh, so... You know, I think, broadly speaking, this is a good thing. It's clearly not good if you're Bertelsmann or Penguin Random House, but it's. Um, I think it was necessary, really. Talking of Stephen King, mm -hmm. you know how I got him mixed up with Linford Barclay? Yes, Linwood Barclay. Linford is an Lin Lin athlete, isn't Yes, it? Linford okay. Christie, yeah. <laughs> so in the newsletter um, today, I ran a little mini competition. Yes. Which um, I posted a picture on the newsletter of a writer yes. and his cat. Yes. And I said the first three people to guess the name of the writer would win a ebook copy of the Unfamily. Since we can't sell it, because I'll give it away for just three people. Yeah. And you'd be surprised, maybe, how many people thought this picture was Stephen King. Right. Blimey, it was, really? It was Haruki Murakami. I was going to say it was Japanese, <laughs> wasn't he? Yeah. Not Stephen. But we had we had quite a Kami. few people think it was Stephen King. Wow. Okay. Right. Well, while we let you think about why you would have thought it was Stephen King, <laughs> um, but he does. He's fond of cats, I believe. Uh, we'll get into the interview with Lucy Hooft. Now, Lucy has worked across the world in many, many interesting and sometimes troubled areas. Has to be said, partly as the member of the Foreign Office, and then in what she describes as DFID, which is the 
International Development Department. Well, it was. It's now part of the Foreign Office. It's all very confusing. But basically, she has worked around the world in some very, very interesting areas. And using her experience, during lockdown, she wrote uh, The King's Port. In fact, it took a bit longer than that. It took a few years. But uh, it is the first of her new series of thrillers featuring a female protagonist who is you know, experiencing going to the countries that Lucy knows so well. And so it was great to catch up with her in publication week from her home on the beaches. I know, she could see the sea, where, or some water. I'm yeah. Sure it was a sea, but... Well, no, of Namibia, uh, which if you've ever seen the Top Gear special, is a very beautiful but barren place. And she's there to grow sea kelp. Well, let, let her explain it all. Let's speak to Lucy Hooft. Well, it's a great pleasure to be joining Lucy Hooft over in Namibia. I think you are the most remote person that we've ever spoken to <laughs> on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. And uh, yeah, joining you all the way from Luleritz, Namibia. Yeah. Now, let's ask that first question then. What are you doing there? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I'm in Luleritz, Namibia, because it's the best place in the world to grow giant kelp. My... <laughs> husband is a um uh he's setting up a startup to grow giant kelp at giant scale and he used to be in the oil and gas business he'd been for a long time looking to get out and do something different and kelp came to us um I went to a lecture given by an Australian scientist who was convinced that kelp was the answer to climate change and I came home started discussing it with my husband and when he started looking into it in more detail, he laid all the different maps of where would be the best place to do it. And it threw up Namibia. And suddenly the idea of kelp became quite real. <laughs> and um, it really was something that looked worth doing. We'd had our honeymoon in Namibia a long time ago and had been sort of subconsciously looking for ways to come back ever since. So it was the perfect combination of circumstances. That's amazing. So what I've got, I've oh, got to ask. That's quite romantic. It is romantic. You back to the place of yeah, and a, and a passion project. Yeah. For those of us who aren't familiar with the the the, the potential of kelp uh, in terms of climate change, what can it do for us? It can do an incredible number of things. So, firstly, just the growing of the kelp itself is incredibly beneficial to the environment. It captures more carbon than terrestrial forests. Um, it deacidifies the ocean. And because you grow essentially an underwater forest, you create an incredible habitat for all sorts of species. So it's a big boost to biodiversity. Um, so just the growing of it is already good for the planet. Um, and then the things that you can do with it. So the products you can make from the harvested kelp are also all able to displace otherwise damaging practices so the first thing we're going to try and make is a biostimulant which you use um, instead of fertilizers and pesticides and it boosts the natural growth of the crop and its resilience to drought and its ability to grow and produce big yields and that sort of thing um, so it can have a big impact on agriculture um, it's a potential for animal feed it's a potential for biopackaging so to replace single-use plastics you can make a biopackaging from seaweed um, you can do lots of very clever things in the pharmaceutical industry with it. Hopefully you can make a textile out of it that would be a natural textile that doesn't require fossil fuels, but also doesn't require fresh water. Um, so that would have a huge potential impact. But there's lots of research and development still needed before we get to any of that. Wow. Yeah. I want a kelp dress. That sounds yeah. Well, <laughs> so well, maybe when you, you get married. <laughs> One day, year. I hope. 
you one know, day well, I hope we if, have if you can accelerate the process ready for Rebecca's wedding next uh, our marriage year. next year yeah. about a year's time that would be great I guess yeah, and I the other you. thing is that I mean I've noticed this with flax that people have been making bicycles rather than using carbon fiber presumably mm. it's going to be fibrous enough and tough enough to do that it certainly should be I mean it has it also has this you know it, it has the tech the um the fiber is the sort of off product once you've got all the other things out of it um it's got this incredible alginate that you can use in place of sort of gelatins and it it just has uh, and proteins and lipids it just has all sorts of um extraordinary properties so we're doing lots of research at the moment and trying to work out what is the best way to use it of the many ways that seem to be possible fantastic and i'm also thinking if i get this is my dream at the moment is to get (laughs) qualified for master chef here in the UK well, at some point. going to do a, a meal of... Yeah, I think I think, I think think kelp needs to be on the menu there somewhere. I know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, there are some amazing things you can make out of it. There's a, there's a small um, restaurant based in South Africa, not far from us, who do sort of a whole tasting menu on kelp. And you can even go and do the foraging yourself. And then they prepare what you've taken from your snorkeling trip. Um, so, yeah, huge, huge possibilities. All right. Well, that's a research trip I need to make then. Uh, let's, let's, let's talk about you as an author. And uh, it's a very exciting week because the release of your first novel uh, is this week, which is terrific. And uh, The King's Pawn is that title. And it draws on your experience of working internationally for the UK in various forms. Tell us about the, the genesis of this story and how long it's taken for you to get it to print. Yes, so The King's Pawn is coming out on Thursday. It's incredibly exciting. It's quite surreal to be here in a town at the end of the earth that doesn't have a bookshop. So I still haven't (laughs) seen a physical copy of it, Um, although the pre-orders are starting to arrive with friends and family. It started, where did it start? It started a long time ago. Um, I started writing it when my daughter was just born, so about nine years ago. Um, And we had just moved to a jungle camp in Gabon and there was very, very little for the sort of non-working partner to do. And I suddenly thought, well, this is the chance to do something I've always wanted to do, which is to write a book. But I didn't really know what I wanted to write about. And I've never been a particular fan of spy fiction. It's not one of the genres that I read in a lot. But when I started thinking about this story as a way of capturing the most exciting places I'd been and people I'd met and the best stories, but in a way more compelling and exciting way than just a memoir. And then the character of Sarah was born and then she was off. And I've been sort of chasing to catch up with her ever since. Um, (laughs) So it was it was a long, long journey, not least because I really had no idea what I was doing when I began writing these books. Um, You know, I've always been a very passionate reader and I've loved books for as long as I can remember. And I thought that would mean that I could write one. And it really doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. (laughs) You know, I, I drive a car every day, but I couldn't make a car or I probably could if I studied it long and hard enough. But that's the thing. You really have to learn your craft and you have to put in the time and you have to understand the nuts and bolts and you have to practice and practice and practice and seek advice and help and guidance and talk to people and look really carefully at how other people do it. And all of that took me took me a long time. And uh, through this process, as I was writing it, we then moved continents another couple of times so um, this book I started in Gabon I finished it in Australia 
I was pitching it when we were back in the Netherlands. Um, so, you know, life was getting in the way. It's not like I was solidly writing a book for nine years. No. Um, well, you have three children as well, don't you? So. And yeah, I had three children. Um, so the, yeah, the, the, sec- the third one was born in, in that time. And yeah, they were obviously all very, very small while all this was happening. And in fact, it was, I think that's why I started it. I had a, a one-year-old and a newborn. And uh, as wonderful as that is, you really have moments when you desperately want to escape. <laughs> but you, you're very kind of physically limited. You can't just go. You can't just have the time off. But to have something that you could do in your head as a way of getting out of the kind of everyday grind. I could be sitting here watching children on, on the beach with eating sand and I could be thinking about <laughs> what was coming next in the Caucasus. And that um, that was a real sort of tonic for me, I suppose. That was what really brought me into the love of writing in the first place. Absolutely. Well, you, you're in a, a very strong position to, to be writing this story. As you say, you've traveled the world with with work, both your own and, and your husband's. Um, but the, the the core of it is your knowledge and, and love of the Caucasus, in particular Georgia. Uh, and a lot of play, you know, a lot of writers will be working that off Google, Google Maps, you know, watching videos. You've experienced, you've lived it, you've shed tea with the, the elders of villages and things like that. <laughs> tell us, tell us. It's why. mostly wine in Georgia, but yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Tell us what grip that's had on you, your your experiences there. Yeah, I mean, Georgia is an immensely special place. It really, my husband and I call it magic land. It just is one of those places where the strange and the startling and the weird and the unusual happen far often than they should do. Um, It's partly that it's spectacularly beautiful. It's a country the size of Scotland, but it's got 5,000 meter mountains and subtropical coastline and desert areas and wine growing region. Um, You know, it's incredibly varied and beautiful. But it's mostly it's people who are just all sparkly eyed storytelling, wine drinking, poetry spouting, brilliant people. So I went there um, working for DFID, the UK Department of International Development, as it was, um, and absolutely fell in love with it. And I was working in Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan and not wanting to diss the other countries of the South Caucasus, which I also enjoyed and very much found fascinating but Georgia was the the one that I loved and that I felt really welcomed by and at home and straight away it's also where I met my now husband so we'll forever have that kind of romantic angle for us and we try to go back as often as we can I'm actually going back in just after Christmas this year in January uh, for the first time since pre-corona so very much looking forward to that and reconnecting with this yeah very special part of the world how do you think um, people are going to react to you setting your book there within that sort of arc of, of, of countries? Is, is that going to, because you know, it's quite a, a dramatic, well, it's clearly it's a thriller. So there are some big things happening that you've set there. Yeah, I mean, it's very much based on real life events. So the whole, the hook for the book in the first place was something that really happened in real life that I don't want to go into too much detail about because it's a bit of a spoiler. Mm. Um, But suffice to say, it's a real life event that could, it was a a terrorist attempt that that had it come off would have changed the course of history. Um, So it is very much set in real life. Um, The president of Georgia at the time is uh, features in the book. It is very much set in that 
Georgia post their revolution that they had in 2002, when it was opening up to the West and when it was sort of throwing off its Soviet shackles um, and and establishing its independence. Um, And so I hope that they, you know, will recognize this and and agree with my representation um, and and enjoy that, you know, someone's an outsider's take on, on their world and their story. During the journey to have this book published, one of the difficulties I faced was that editors liked the story and they liked the premise and they liked the character, but they were, they were troubled by the time historical setting. So it's not far enough away that it's historical fiction, but it's not contemporary enough to be now. So these sort of, you know, the 2000s, what is it? It's not clear to anyone what that is. Um, and it's, you know, too far away to be, it becomes a bit mysterious for a millennial because, you know, it was sort of mobile phone days, but pre-smartphone and mm. the way life was done was all quite different. So they were all about, mm, you know, can, can you make it contemporary? Can you rewrite it in 2021? Um, which, because it was based on a historical event, was problematic. Um, <laughs> But it is sort of fundamentally the context of it is about Russian interference in their neighbours and, um, you know, a former Soviet Republic becoming an independent Western leaning modern country and uh, the reaction of Russia to that. And of course, at the time, old hat, you know, that's 2005, there was a war in 2008, where it's not interesting anymore. Whereas now, sadly, it is suddenly much more topical, the theme of russia interfering with their neighbors absolutely yeah i was going to say i mean they're never going to do anything stupid like that are they (laughs) (laughs) but they've done it a number of times yeah and they're at it again sarah black your your protagonist how much of her is you do you think so obviously i wasn't a spy i joined university uh, straight after university i joined the foreign office i went over to diffid i was sent off to the former soviet union then i went to beijing then i went to sierra leone and everybody just assumed that I was a spy. That was just the sort of unspoken truth, the obvious narrative. So the books were a lot of kind of what would that have looked like? The what if? If I had been a spy, perhaps this is what it would have been a bit, a bit like. So I think that's how I started writing it. And then that was deeply problematic because to write about yourself as a fictional character is really difficult because you get very self-conscious and you, you know, you don't want to delve into the the you don't want to put as much of yourself on the page as you need to if you're writing fiction. The sort of vulnerabilities and the, the exposing yourself, I just wasn't good at it. It was my, my, my Sarah became this sort of featureless character. Cool things happened to her and she was surrounded by lots of other interesting people, but she herself was a bit of a nothing. So I really had to actively make her not me in order to be able to write her well and to be able to do her justice so I you know that was part of the the nine years that has been the writing Mm. of this book was developing that and and giving her her own set of personality traits and character and and yeah bringing her to life in a way that is very much not me although obviously there were some parallels yeah that's interesting because I haven't actually heard that perspective before because I think people assume that it would be easier to write a character that's like yourself because you've experienced things and you can write about them from your point of view. But actually what you say is is true. Yeah, in a sense you were tripping yourself up as you were writing it that you're oh no, no. Yeah. pull that pull that out. That's too close to, to home. 
Yes, exactly. And I'm sure, you know, obviously some people are wonderful memoir writers and are able to to put themselves on a page in a really, truly honest and genuine way. I think I was just too a little bit too scared to be this is me um, and to be doing the sort of interrogation of her motives and really what she was doing and why that you, as a writer you have to do with your characters. You have to know them inside out. And if it felt like me, you know, you're always sort of slightly defending yourself, whereas with a character, you can be a bit harsher and more more honest. Absolutely. And you've written a fascinating blog about this journey to the point now where we approach your publication mm. day about the contact with agents and the, the them placing it in front of at one stage Penguin Random House were looking at it and it, it felt like it was going to get there and then it didn't quite because the committee thing comes in and they go not sure you know the the thing about big publishing houses is they're always looking at as many reasons as why they can't publish it as they can so that that was a, a thing and then there's the impact of working with jericho writers based in oxford and they've done a lot of great work with with, with yourself but it, many other authors it's sensible tangible advice that you can follow that improves your chances of being published and indeed opening doors to to agents and things like that so it's a, it's a fascinating journey but there have been a lot of false dawns on that on that path for you that must have been quite a roller coaster in terms of the you know the ups and downs of feeling like almost there and yeah and then the, and then the disappointment coming in yeah it, it certainly has been I think that's a very good word it has been a roller coaster there's been an awful lot of almost but but I think I'm now sort of deeply grateful for the length of that process. And the reason is, well, one, it's a much better book now than it was when I started trying to get an agent and I started trying to put it out. Because each time I came to a sort of halt in the road, I would reassess, I would look at it again, I would get advice, I would talk to someone, I would do a course, I would, you know, seek a way to work out, well, how can I take it from the almost but no to the yes? Um, And the other thing is that I think it really does, it does help to stave off sort of imposter syndrome. You know, I think if it's too easy, write a book, you don't know what you're doing. You've been a civil servant, but why not write books, send it off, here's an agent, here's a publishing deal. You'd forever feel a bit that that was jumping the queue. Whereas I now feel nine years on that I've I've put in the work to have this book published. And I'm really very, very, very excited that it's finally going to be out into the world. Absolutely. And and in terms of the advice that you've taken and acted on, what areas of your craft have improved most, do you think, from the impact put that you've you've had? Oh, that's a good question. So I think two things. One is planning. So when I first started this book, I had no plan. I just had a character and she was going to waltz around in Georgia and do cool stuff because that's you know what I wanted to write about. And there was no plot there was you know, there was no <laughs> concept of what was going to happen in the end there were no stakes it was just really a, an absolute mess um and so I've had to go back at time and time again to reverse engineer in place all the things that I should have put in place in the first place and you know I now think it's got there and it works but it was a very inefficient way of doing it and so for writing book two and then especially book three that I'm doing now I did it mm. completely the other way around so from the beginning I have an enormous plan and and an Excel spreadsheet of exactly, you know, the stakes and the character arcs and the who wants what and how they're going to get it and the red herrings and the where are the sort of Mm. false sleep and everything is there even before I start writing. And that 
it just suits me a lot better. I don't know why I didn't realize that this was the thing to do. And I know it's not for everyone. A lot of people are just like to write as the muse strikes them. But for me, and especially writing a thriller where, you know, you have to have these red herrings and false directions and <gasps> moments, um, you have to plan those in. It doesn't work otherwise. No, um, you're right. That's one. Uh, um, and I think yeah. the second would be just about character. Um, and about delving deeper into characters and really thinking in every scene, what is the character's motivation? What do they want here? What's stopping them from getting it? For each character to have that for the entire book, to have it for every scene, to have it for every interchange, to really understand what's beyond and underneath what you see here in this moment. And that's really helped to kind of bring out yeah, just the authenticity of it, I suppose, to make it have a more real ring and and to bring out the the emotional response you know when you read a book you want to have an emotional response to what's going on to the characters if it's all a little bit too superficial you don't get that yeah um, and it work as well that's um very valuable advice I think I think yeah. you know that I mean the character thing's interesting isn't it because as a reader that's what keeps you reading because you you feel something for that character if you don't feel anything you don't care then you're not going mm. to want to kick. And it's the, I think what's so hard for a lot of authors, and I include myself in this, is is figuring out why readers care. And actually yeah. what they want to see is characters who have some relatability. But most of all, they want characters that do things. And from they do things for a reason, whether it's right or wrong or, you know, a false impression or a fallacy. They just want to see people go out and take action. And and you can't really have characters, as, as you're describing, in a scene where they're just passive and just not doing anything and have just turned up and just sort of mm. like like bad school actors at the back of the stage um, <laughs> who are fiddling with their hands because they can't figure out what they're supposed to be there for. Well, that's something Greg Moss was saying, wasn't mm, it? Absolutely. That, that every scene you have to think, what's the char- What's their motive? What are they doing? What are they trying to achieve in that scene? It doesn't yeah. matter what it is, even if it's just, you know, something really minor in the in the story. They've got to have got to be the action that doing and that getting towards something yeah and it is I mean there it is the magic formula what makes readers care and I don't think unfortunately anyone has it in a soundbite but you certainly know it when it's not there and mm. I said you're writing a thriller and a spy thriller you sort of think it's all plot it's got to be action and it's got to be suspense but in fact none of that matters if you don't care about the character because you know she could get flattened by the truck so you know, yeah. have to <laughs> exactly the reader thinks so. I really want her to get out of the way of the truck. Otherwise, you won't keep reading. You mentioned book two, which is due out fairly early next year, The Head of the Snake. Yes. In March, I believe. How, yes, that's how... right. It just um it actually just went up yesterday. Oh, wow. <laughs> there we go. So well, we're, we're hot with the new information. Yeah, we are. And that's <laughs> Pulse. <laughs> but in, in, in terms of the difference between the long gestation period for the first book to to this next one, how how much quicker was that process? Not actually that much quicker because already, I mean, I've always envisaged this as a five book series. It's mm. a five act play that you know that whether or not they ever got published, I was going to write them because I just had to find out what was going to happen at the end because I don't quite know yet. But so I'd always been very clear on where the books were going and also the geographical locations that they were going to be set in. So while I from when I very first began the kind of querying process for book one, I was already writing book two. 
And actually, by the time I signed with my agent for book one, book two already had a complete draft. So it has also been a long time coming and it has also been part of the learning process. And it was, in fact, book two that hooked Burning Chair, who are my lovely publishers. Yeah, um, because book one was the one um, that we so the king's uh, pawn as is was the one that got the Penguin Random House interest and, um, you know, lots of very exciting almost moments, but then none of them got past that final sort of, you know, sales committee who just say no a lot. Um, (laughs) And so in the end, my agent and I decided that maybe we should, because book two was ready and because it, it felt at that stage a better book because I had more experience and knew what I was doing, maybe not fully, that we would we would launch that one as book one and we would repackage that as the first in the series. And I was always a really sad about this because book one is the beginning. It's the opening act. And it felt very strange to me to be launching a five book series that was missing the beginning. And then the main reason that I, I was really sad about it was because it's my, my Georgia book and it's my love song to Georgia. And I was really sad that that would end up in, in a, in a draw while I was launching off in Sierra Leone. So uh, Burning Chair saw book two, The Head of the Snake, um, really liked it. We had a chat. They were interested to see all of them or all that existed. And I then did a complete rewrite on The King's Pawn. So I'd had a development editor look at it. I'd had some really useful feedback, but I'd never managed to find the time to sit down and do anything about it. There'd been Corona and lockdown and mm-hmm. homeschooling in Dutch, which I don't speak very well. And then moving to Namibia and, you know, life had got in the way. But I suddenly thought this is my last chance to get this book right And I just want to try one more time before I put it in its proverbial draw. So, yeah, I did a complete rewrite. I did a lot of changes. I brought it all into the present tense, which it had been written in the past tense. So that was quite a major jump. Um, And uh, yeah, then I sent it to Burning Chair and thank goodness they liked it. (laughs) Yeah, boy, I mean, packing all of those things in, I, I was going to ask about, you're talking about book three and how much clearer your plan is and and the spreadsheets and 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 such like do you have to run your life given that you're changing location so often and shipping stuff <laughs> between places you must run your life as a spreadsheet to be that you know no to, I'm, I'm actually chaotically disorganized and amazingly good at being distracted as well like I can have 10 things I need to do but I'm busy looking at Twitter or updating BBC or you know whatever and at at the moment I'm setting up a school in Namibia that's actually my full-time job probably I'm making videos for Kelp Blue and then I'm sort of trying to find time for the writing in between I have to be a little bit like okay this week the focus is that you know I I obviously every day ends up with a little bit of all the different things that I do Mm. but especially for the writing I need proper headspace and time and say okay this week this two weeks this month I'm doing this. This is what I need to achieve in that time. Um, because to be, I mean, to be able to, to, to do editing, I think is a little bit more you can fit it in as and when, but to do a first draft, to do the really creative, imaginative piece of the work, I need a bit more space and time than I really ever have in my day-to-day life. <laughs> um, so I'm a little, you know, obviously I'm now here doing these three other jobs, um, and balancing lots of other things and I've got these two books ready to go which is very exciting but 
I will have to finish book three quite soon. And that's sort of slightly scaring me. And then I will have to start book four, which I haven't, I mean, I've got an outline. I know what's going to happen, but I haven't done any of the writing yet. Um, that will be next. So I'm just going to have to get, maybe I should get a spreadsheet. Maybe that's the answer. <laughs> well, maybe. I, I, it's an anathema, anathema to me. I mean, uh, well, Rebecca's the queen of spreadsheets well, here. It's so chaotic, though. Well, you are chaotic, yeah. One spreadsheet that has my to-do list on, it's all colour-coded. But it has <laughs> everything. It has, like, don't forget to go to the dentist, as well as, you know, all yeah. the work things. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, not... that's life. That is, they, these are the things that you have to remember. As yeah. well as books and... Well, you obviously feed off that, that you know, the, the multiplicity of the things you're doing, the energy of it, which is, is t- tremendous. But, you know, one of those things would be challenge enough. But to manage all of those is, is quite extraordinary, Lucy. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I never, ever knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. And um, I because I didn't like the idea that by choosing one thing, you have to not do all the other things. And I hated every moment when I had to make big decisions in life like what do you do for your A-levels what do you study at university what job do you get because by making a decision for something you're making a decision against everything else and I always wanted to do everything (laughs) so the fact that I am now obviously not doing everything but doing quite a lot and a lot of different things is really giving me great satisfaction and I'm immensely happy that I'm for now managing to pull off this balance and juggle and hope I'll be able to keep it up for a while. <laughs> Let's go back then to that you know, period of your life where you are making choices. And, and I absolutely empathize with that because I used university as an opportunity to buy myself four years to figure out, as it turned out. Yeah, years, I didn't have a clue either. Yeah, <laughs> what I was going to do. With my... doing, how many degrees have I got now? Three. Three. <laughs> That's amazing. Everybody so that. fine art on one end of the spectrum, economics and politics on the other. <laughs> Well, then you can do anything. You should go for prime minister. <laughs> God help us all. Yeah, and that actually, she should make a good one. Be very considered. Um, the but the but the 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 thing is with that is you know it was like that in the sense that at the time when we were looking at careers in the eighties and early nineties, uh, if you made a decision, the only jobs that where you had there was there was such a sort of a path you had to. You could not, portfolio careers did not exist really, did they? No. I mean, do, I, doing economics and politics, I was told banking was probably, or I was, I was told to become a vicar by my <laughs> career service <laughs> when I was 16. I'd have made a very bad one. Uh, I'd have been terrible. I've been very sweary vicar, I think. Oh, I can't, your sermons would have been great. They would have, they would have been colourful. But... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I mean, the point is, uh, through that period, how much of a thread was reading and love of books and literature? Was that was that a strong thread for you? Yeah, that was a very strong thread. I mean, I studied um, French and philosophy at university, and my mother's response to that is, what are you going to do with that? And I think I was very much <laughs> with you that I didn't know what I was going to do with that, but it was things that I enjoyed and I liked, and it would give me four years to put off having to make another decision. And that actually came about, I did um, quite an odd combination of A-levels. I did double maths and English and French. Um, So two sort of arts and humanities and two hardcore further maths um, geekery. And uh, I went to look around Oxford colleges and I had always assumed I'd go and do PPE because that seemed the sort of biggest, broadest, like your politics and economics. It allows you to do lots of different things, very different disciplines all in one. 
Um, and I was being shown round by a neighbour of mine who had in fact done the same unusual A-level combination. And he at one point had to go away to a French tutorial. And he came back and he said, you can't apply for PPE because you will miss the literature too much. You just can't do it. And I suddenly realized, because you're totally right. I absolutely would. Imagine having to do four years reading books that are not fiction books and reading books <laughs> that you don't love. Um, and I, you know, and I, I completely, he had put his finger on the, the thing that would have made that really not work for me. Um, and so French philosophy, the, the French degree is, I mean, there's obviously language includes, but it's mostly a literature degree. And so you just get to devote four years of your life to studying obscure bits of French literature. And it was it was wonderful. Um, so, yeah, that that very much has always been the um, a, a major part of the things that I was interested in and yeah, that wanted to make sure that they stayed a part of my life. Absolutely. But you, you were saying that crime fiction and thriller fiction wasn't necessarily your genre uh, for pleasure. No, not really. I mean, it's a sort of slightly <laughs> my guilty secret. I feel a bit bad talking about it. Um, that, you know, I'm wanting people to read my spy thriller and I should be a, a great lover of the genre and know all sorts of things about it. But not really. I mean, I've always read very broadly, but generally more sort of on the literary fiction end of things. As I've started writing these books, and I've obviously explored a lot more within the genre um, in order to understand what I was doing and where its place would be and that sort of thing. And I have found lots of spy books that I do really like. They tend to be more of the sort of old school. So John le Carre, I love um, Ian Fleming. I mean, for all its ridiculousness, is also brilliant. And I love the sort of surreal, bizarre elements of that that I think is missing in a lot of contemporary spy fiction. I bet a lot of contemporary spy fiction takes itself slightly too seriously for my taste. And I like the silliness. I, you know, spy fiction is fundamentally a bit silly. It's all sort of chases and bangs and who did this and who did that. And if you lose that and all take it very dark and gritty and serious, then it, that's what lost my appeal. And so in my books, I've sort of always thought of them as spy novels for people who don't like spy novels. Yeah, um, me. <laughs> which is a bit of a sort of strange subgenre. And, and certainly the reviews so far have backed that up. People pick it up who would, you know, don't really like spy fiction or wouldn't normally read it and are surprised to discover that they do enjoy this story. So, yeah, I would hope that I have, you know, while being respectful of the genre, um, I'm doing something slightly different to fit a slightly different category of readership. Now, you see, that does appeal to me because, I i mean, before we became crime and thriller publishers, I didn't read much crime and thrillers at all. Oh, gosh, mm. that's a, that's giving away too much. <laughs> so I've, just, I've just let out my darker secret, so it's fine, you can do it. Yeah, yeah. I think people know that. I've, I've written a blog about that, that, you know, and it actually opened my eyes to how much variation there is within the, those genres and you know it's not just what you expect it to be if you try and and I, I know I like I like I've added it to all my other reading yeah but yeah no so you're yeah it sounds you're buying it aren't you so yes of course <laughs> well, it is all the... please have a read and let me know whether whether it works we will yeah. we will indeed we will indeed uh, so the the five book arc that's the plan at the moment but with your leanings towards literary fiction, have you got uh, ideas that that might be more in that field? Once once you've well, I know, the... I know you write flash fiction because I, yeah. I confess before the podcast I was reading some of your flash fiction. Ah, brilliant! I the one about oh. 
um the the mannequin that woman that was yeah. very powerful so that's completely oh, different yeah. from spy novels though yeah oh, totally and that's why i love it because <laughs> when you're stuck in a nine-year process of writing a convoluted plot to have a 500 word complete story is just such a refreshing escape <laughs> um it's a so totally yeah i've different always challenged it is. It is totally different. And I was doing actually a flash fiction course. I was lucky enough to win a place on a course through a Twitter competition. And I was doing it while I was writing the first draft of book three. And there's a li- there's little sections of, of book three where the two got a bit confused. <laughs> I sort of had these sort of flash fiction moments in my in my spy novel, which really doesn't work, unfortunately. And, you know, I sent it out to a couple of very trusted beach readers and they were all like, what is that bit? <laughs> what were you doing? Um, so, yes, they don't they don't really combine. But I think actually, obviously, any sort of writing is useful craft practice. I think what you can bring from Flash is really making every word count and pulling out things that are unnecessary, pulling out waffle, pulling out descriptions that you don't need, really thinking about the sort of bones of a story, what's really essential. Yeah, so they they inform each other. But um, yeah, I have to sort of keep my thriller hat on and my flash hat on. <laughs> Absolutely. Gosh, We're going to get to the got a lightning bolt on your hat. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to your random question very soon, Rebecca. But yes. it actually reminds me that you've, like, in, in common with quite a number of our previous guests, your editor has been Rebecca Miller. Oh, oh, really? Yes. Is yeah. that yeah. that common? So, yeah, so she was the one whose um, I had gone to her. Um, it was, in fact, through Jericho. They had their, they put their festival online for the first time during COVID. Yeah. And I would never have been able to attend one of their festivals before because I never lived in the right country. Um, I had young children. I wouldn't be able to take a whole long weekend to go off and do something that might seem a bit self-indulgent. Um, when you've got family and jobs and everything else uh, and of course the expense is much more expensive in person so I just it was never would never been an option but suddenly in COVID it was online and I there I was at my desk in the Netherlands in the middle of you know middle of nowhere Netherlands able to take part in this in this event and and have access to these extraordinary bits of information and people and advice and one of them, I can't remember which it was, but recommended getting yourself a development editor, whatever stage you're at, and whether you were going for self-publishing or trad publishing or an independent mm-hmm. publisher, getting an external person to give you that, you know, this works, that doesn't work on this, work on that, is invaluable. And it is very expensive. And so, you know, I was only able to go for the sort of bottom rung entry level of Rebecca um, gave me a sort of editorial letter, I think it's called, where she read it all and she gave me kind of a letter that put into paragraphs the things that she thought I should look at. And that was what informed my my final rewrite. That was the one that, um, you know, the, the the final push that was the one that I ended up sending to, to Burning Chair. So, yeah, I'm incredibly grateful for her um, her wisdom and guidance. And, and she's incredibly good at, you know, just a letter to three pages. I don't remember how long it was, but really pinpointing these are the things that work and these are the things that that don't we need to get on the podcast i was just gonna say (laughs) we've spoken about rebecca miller a fair bit um simon mcleave is the 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 most obvious um yeah cat yaff as well uh, only last week so uh yeah quite a number of people have 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 used her services and and speak very very highly of her so she must come speak for herself on our oh yes get her on please 
absolutely. Well, look, it's time uh, for the ultimate uh, challenge. And look, you, you're, you're somebody who can overcome all sorts of challenges. It strikes me, but this is this is so easy for you. This is no, this is it. This is the biggie, and I'm going to do the voice. Here we go. Rebecca's random question. My question usually comes from something that's happening in our lives. So this week we have two birthdays. My youngest was 13 yesterday, that's a thing then, and my oldest is 19 tomorrow. So it's, a, it's almost like mini Christmas here. So my question is, what is the strangest present you've ever been given? <laughs> oh, well, that's a very good question. Um, what is the strangest present I've ever been We're given? We're all adults here. We can have the inappropriate <laughs> I bet on your travels you've been given some, you know, for... Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, OK, not as a birthday present, but yeah, as, as presents, travels, yeah. we used to get... Um, when I worked in China for Difford, we were always given um, sort of gifts by whichever town or Communist Party chief or prefecture or governorate we were visiting. And they would give really fantastically bizarre gifts. And my favourite is um, a flying horse um from somewhere and Gansu was a famous statue I think it's probably been torn down now but they were very proud of their flying horse and made a sort of slightly strange and ugly sculpture of it um yeah that was sort of mounted in gold and presented it at the end of our trip and <laughs> uh yeah my flying horse I was very proud of oh yeah that's good good what about you well I don't know if my brother listens to this podcast probably, probably not. not it was one year and I don't know what possessed him um he and he posted it as well so he bought me an enormous eraser. I'm not going to say rubber. Enormous eraser. <laughs> it was about this big, but it was so heavy. And he posted it to me because we weren't living. In For the those who can't see, which is everybody, uh, you <laughs> gestured about two foot long. Yeah. So <laughs> it, I got it for my, uh, I think it was birthday. And, I, and then I went to work um, after Christmas and I just put it in the stationery cupboard and thought, They'll just think somebody misordered it or something because I had no use for it. <laughs> that could be still going now. You know how many times Toby can't find his eraser or, or indeed his rubber. So in Oxford University Press, it's probably still in the, the stationery cupboard yeah. where I worked. It'd be worth a fortune now in just raw <laughs> materials. Uh, well, you buy me. Could you even presents. use that? I mean, was it so big that it was sort of um, impossible to actually manoeuvre, or was oh, it? I bet it was. <laughs> It would rip, out with it. It would rip the page up, yeah. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> uh, for those who can't see, Rebecca was making what looked like very, very dodgy uh, movements that uh, uh, a man might make in an intimate situation. Stop it. But it was. What was your strange present? Well, uh, you buy me them all the time. Um, I think the, the 3D medical model of a heart that you gave me for Valentine's Day one year. But I, I wanted to give you a real heart. Yeah. Um, but that, that, that that's one of the most bizarre. I mean, I, I bought a terrible present. I bought a friend of mine um, who I was occasionally seeing at university. I bought her what was called a thigh master. Oh, God, that's a good one. advertised on, you know, that late night. That's pre- very, very bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was an, we used to laugh about it. And so I thought it would be <laughs> just a giggle to buy one. But she took it completely the wrong way. Uh, what do I? <laughs> it was it was a misthought. Yeah, no, I think. Yeah, bit of a misthought. Yeah. 
after the hitman and her and and uh been on the tv at two in the morning this thing would come on an infomercial about the, the wonders of the thigh master i've actually been to a hitman and her road show you have haven't yeah you? yeah i have the but... london boys were there <laughs> oh boy right let's before we disappear down the, the the corridor uh let's wrap things up look it's been an absolute pleasure um it's amazing this this technology thing that we can speak to you in uh the uh, the wilds of Namibia. I bet the weather's better than here. Do you think? Before before we go, Lucy, just ex- you know, if if we were to take a virtual step outside your front door, are you on the beach? Is it you know what, um, what's what's your immediate environment like? So no, we're I'm in in the town. Um, it's a it's a pretty small town. It's a um, it was a German town that was built with untold diamond wealth in the early nineteen nineteen hundreds. Um, so it was very, very beautiful. And then has been the diamonds were then elsewhere and it has been sort of left and um, not really developed much beyond that. Um, so it's beautiful, but in a sort of slightly decrepit rundown way. Um, it is always sunny and always blue sky here, which is really something very strong in its favour. But it never rains, which you'd think would be a good thing. But of course, that means there's also no trees, no green, no nothing that grows naturally without the aid of a hose pipe. Um, so it's like the moon. The, it really looks like the moon with some pretty brightly coloured German houses on it. Um, and then we look out to sea. Um, I can see from where I'm sitting um, the beautiful blue waters of the Benguela Current, which is what's supporting the kelp. Um, and yeah, it's a very, very special, strange place. It's also the windiest place in the world. So at this time of year in the afternoons, the wind picks up and it howls all afternoon and all evening. And the um, best windsurfers in the world are actually here this month trying to break the record, which they do every November, because it's the place that you can go fastest on a windsurfer. Wow. Amazing. Well, what do we see? Rain? Or we've got the medieval medieval moat. If we look past the recycling bin. And the bins, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) we can see a medieval moat. So we'll, we'll hold on to that. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lucy Hooft, I should say. Uh, get that right. I was going to say Hooft. Uh, I'm trying to be fake, fake and Dutch. But uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. And all the best with uh, the King's Pawn and subsequent books. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great fun. And, um, yeah, thank you very much for having me. I think we almost caught her out with the, the random question. I mean, she knew it was coming. She listens to the show. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was you know. Uh, well, I th- she coped once she knew it didn't have to be birthday or Christmas. It could be any present. Right. Absolutely. Because <laughs> in her job, she was she would have been given lots of gifts. So, Well, actually, subsequently, I thought of all the gifts you've given me, which, you know, we talked about the heart. But then there was the one where you gave me some knitted sandwiches. Yes. I did. Knitted cheese and cucumber sandwiches. And that's sandwiches. not the only knitted item that you've given me in the past. And people who read Cook in the Books will know why I gave you yeah. knitted cheese and cucumber sandwiches. Beautiful segue into the fact that Cook in the <laughs> Books, actual physical copies of that book in hardback have arrived today. Yay. Yay, they did. Yeah, so I'm so pleased. So I'm going to the post office later for all the bloggers on the on the blog tour. And um, we've had some orders, but I'm not posting those just yet because it's not publication. Oh, yes. go on. Well, I can't, can I? I oh, know, I know. Anyway, no, except to, to uh, one of our very loyal fans who lives in Arkansas. Arkansas. <laughs> I nearly said Arkansas again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Arkansas. Um, yeah. So, uh, no, that's exciting. 
you know, a lot of work's gone into that. And, you know, you think, yeah, well, we'll knock out a charity book every year and all that sort of thing. But you've got to remember that how many of our authors contributed? 21, I think it was, or something, was it? Or 20? Or... Um, I'm not going to, I can't remember exactly how many contributed, but. Well, a number of, well, it's quite a large number of contributors in different formats with different, you know, approaches to the challenge of, of putting stories and culinary recipes together. And so it's taken you an enormous amount of time to get that typeset and sorted out and proofed and all that malarkey. So you've done a great job and you designed the cover this time as well, as you did last year. Yes, and it's, it's, the, 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 one, it's the only Hobeck book, except for the free e-books that mm. we sometimes um, produce. But it's the only physical book that I decide myself I want to design the cover as a challenge to myself, really. I'm just because I enjoy doing it. Yeah. And... I mean, they're never perfect, so I hope people are a little bit forgiving. They're never perfect, the covers that I make, but I could say that's part of their charm. <laughs> no, it's a good cover. It's a good cover. I mean, yes, I mean, you would say there's always little things that, you know, once it's printed, you can see, oh, I could have done that slightly better, but it, it's terrific, and it's a great book, and it's for charity, and it's available from our website. Yes, so w- you can pre-order now. Indeed, www.hobeck.net. Go to our shop page and order it there. We'll get it sent out to you. In Christmas uh, paper. In Christmas paper. And the other thing to remember is this is for charity. It is all profits from this book will support the Trussell Trust, who are Britain's biggest food bank charity, helping people yeah. enjoy something of Christmas and beyond. So we'd like, uh, you know, as many of you as possible, please consider buying it. It's, it's a terrific little book. We've contributed stories to it. We're, we're proud of what we do with the charity element of our work. Uh, now, we had some other positive news this week. I don't want to make it all black, you know, like my, um, you know, area. The, the <laughs> Too much information, I know. The fact is uh, we have spent several months we published recently a trio of books, which is going to be a longer Who's series, that? the George Zamet series yeah. by A.J. Aberford, uh, or Tony Gartland in real life, who lives in Malta. And one of the things we did was he said, look, we've got one company control all the bookshops on the island. That's Miller Distribution. I don't suppose you could approach them. And, and he said, I doubt they'll be interested, but... They were. Yeah, we, we did think, we thought, fat chance. We, we thought, well, we might as well send them an email. You yeah, never know. Yeah, absolutely. But... And, it, and, and it landed. And, and yes, they did want some books. And it's been a major commitment to it for us to get them out there, not least because clearly post-Brexit, it's much, much harder to export items, as we found out. We had to do all sorts of hoops and red tape that we hadn't geared ourselves up for hitherto because we don't really export books in number and until ha- this occasion. I have to confess, so it was when we were on holiday in Devon when sort of mm. things weren't quite working out very well in terms of the bureaucracy. Oh, gosh. And I mean, the amount of detail and data you have to provide and the licences and all sorts of things, yeah. So personally, I was feeling quite stroppy at that point because we were going to the Tank Museum and I, I was trying to find a signal so I could email Clays <laughs> in Suffolk or... Um, our contact for Miller Distribution and I was just trying to tell them that don't worry we're we're sorting it out and then we went back to the cottage and I was trying Mm. to sort out the things that needed sorting out and I was thinking I'm on holiday is this worth it but now I think it was worth it yeah look it was worth it on two levels first of all we learned a lot from the actually you know whenever you're stretched you learn things yes and so we can now export we know what we're doing to an extent which you do and because you work very hard to get this done and more and more things kept coming out of the woodwork of, oh, have you done this and have you done that? You know, it's 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 
anyone who, I, I respect people's right to support Brexit, but from a business point of view, it's just put a ton of things in the way of doing your job, basically. But the upshot is the books are now finally two months after publication day or even three months nearly <laughs> yeah. we'll in, the, over that in fact. the bookshops, <laughs> the access bookshops in the W. H. Smith's at the airport in Malta. And guess what? I know this is, this is the best bit. So Tony went down to see his books. See, in I place. think he was just on his way home. wasn't Yeah, he? he was actually, yeah, he was on his way home. He went to the airport bookshop and he found his book in the bestseller section at number two in the Maltese bestseller list. So congratulations to him. It deserves it. It's a great book. And thank you to Miller Distribution for getting them into your bookshops. And thank you, Rebecca, for all the hard work <laughs> and people at Clay's. And, and, you know, they really went to a great deal of trouble to get this sorted out. Uh, and it's just wonderful to know that there is a market and, uh, you know, that has appealed to the people of Malta, as they should do, because they're great books set on your wonderful island with all of its many, many layers of interesting stuff. It's history. Mm. It's politics. It's location geographically in the center of the Mediterranean, not far from Libya, not far from Italy and in the in the middle of the migrant crisis and all sorts of things going on, plus geopolitical tensions, which feature in Tony's books. They're great books. And uh, it's great that they're number two. And, um, you know, all of that hard work, it feels like it's paying off. But uh, at the time we're doing these things, and remember, folks, it's just the two of us doing the majority of the stuff here. In fact, it's you, mostly you with me doing other kind of elements but essentially that's what Hobeck Books is along with the support of some fantastic cover designers and editors and of course our authors yeah and also I, w- I do I would like to um, appreciate and the, the people at Clay's and the people at Clay's because, yeah you know, I always say to them like we haven't really done anything like this before so please forgive me if I don't mm. understand everything the processes and we've had quite a few book-related things go wrong where I've had to contact Clays or gardeners. And the people I talk to are always very understanding. And, they, you know, yeah. they, they... I mean, this is another issue, is that paperbacks, that the ebook side of things, until we've had really these problems with Linda's book, you know, we, you know we've usually been able to get round the problems with ebooks relatively quickly. Yeah. Until this week. But paperbacks... Because you're relying on so many elements of a chain you don't control, that's much, much harder to monitor what's going on between ordering those books, putting the metadata at Nielsen's, and then being published, being put into the distribution, you know, being stored, being put into distribution, and then the systems, all the different computer systems speaking to each other cleanly so that bookshops can actually order those books. Yeah. And far too often recently it's been breaking down. Now, there's been a number of factors that everyone knows about, Waterstone's back office ordering system just completely collapsing for two months, causing havoc. Uh, but other things can go wrong too. And it's so hard because we don't have any access to those systems. We actually have to physically contact people and ask, you wouldn't mind checking, see if it's all right your end? Mm, to find out like, yeah. yeah and and it, it is really time consuming and difficult and we're talking about a few sales here and there mm. to be perfectly honest but it can be it can take over a chunk of a week several yeah. weeks to sort things out like this and it's one of the great frustrations of being a small publisher where we don't have the muscle 
uh, or indeed the team of people whose job it is to make sure books get to bookshops successfully, which major publishers do. Yeah, or the single channel. So most publishers will have a single channel, which will, you know, be the, 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 the all the different printers going to a storage company At then gardeners, go to the gardeners yeah. and then go into the bookshops and it's all it sort of speaks a lot easier than the the way we've been doing it just by the nature of i mean of course we'll try and improve that situation but you know i do appreciate that for authors and for bookshops and everybody involved in indeed ourselves it's incredibly frustrating yeah um and you know it's just one of those things where when it's just the two of you doing everything um and that's a heck of a lot of responsibilities, including this podcast, which we choose to do and we love doing, uh, it's difficult. So, I mean, just putting some things in context, and I think that's important. Now, we're appearing in a podcast very soon. Well, I'm not sure when it's going out yet, um, but yes, we are. We are. We, anyway. haven't, we haven't been given a date of when it's going out. Okay. Well, it, Cooking okay. cook the Books is appearing in the podcast. That's oh, good, good, good. But, I mean, I think it's worth saying that, you know, we have been on a podcast with Karen Solomon from Miranda Books talking about the issues of being a small publisher. And, you know, it's not just unique to us. But actually what I think I'm getting round to saying, and it's interesting because we've had some contact with some other small indies recently, is that I think there is a – a sense in which if we had time, we'd all get together a bit more rather than the independent publishers. Uh, guild, the IPG, yeah. The IPG being dominated by the Bloomsbury's of the world and the, and the big names, actually the smaller guys getting together, actually having a conversation, a sort of composium, if you know, symposium about how we get, you know, best practice. How do we get around all these issues that all of us are facing? What can we do together? To sort it out. We should just meet for lunch in Birmingham or somewhere in the middle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oxford. Let's do Oxford. <laughs> Mind you, they're all based in Oxford, aren't they? Anyway. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. Well, it's a busy week ahead for us uh, again. Um, we've got all sorts of, of things creeping up on us, like Christmas. Um, but, <laughs> but we've got a lot of, uh, lot of projects which are still moving along a pace. And uh, so in between times, I will try and catch some football. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your eyes popped out of your skull there. <laughs> well, I'm missing the England game today. What more do you want? I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, let's wrap it up there. Uh, I've been Adrian Hobart. He has, and I've been Rebecca Collins. And we've really appreciated your company for this edition of the Hobbycast. Next week's guest, well, we talked about her this week, Rebecca Miller, yep. editor extraordinaire has worked with Simon McCleave and many, many other authors, including Cat Yaff uh, as well. And um, Morgan Green. And Morgan Green, yes, of course. Yeah. So, you know, one of the best editors in the UK. Uh, it just, she's brilliant. And everyone says that her grip on a story is like no other. <laughs> and so we're delighted that she's joining us next week for episode number 99. And I we're know. still working really hard to make number 100 special. Yeah, we had the person who we wanted hasn't, I hasn't seen my emails for some reason, or I don't know. So I'm something's I'm bre- something's breaking yeah. down in that. I don't know if she's going through gardeners, maybe going through gardeners. What's that mean? I'm just saying if the chain's breaking <laughs> down. <laughs> oh, very funny. Or maybe she's been lost in KDP uh, customer <laughs> well, services. She's, o- she's only available for sale in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, we we know who you are. You know who you are, and uh, we'll we'll get this sorted out somehow. Uh, there must be a way. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, well. The usual thing. We wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.